When someone is lost, a search and rescue team is assembled for the purpose of finding and helping the person in trouble. The mission is of utmost importance because the lost person's life literally depends upon it. We live in a region, a state, a nation, and a world that is filled with lost people. They are our family, our friends, co-workers, bosses, teammates, students, neighbors, and strangers. They are rich, middle class, and poor. They are black, brown, yellow, red, and white. They are educated and uneducated. They are young, middle-aged, and old. They are religious and non-religious. These people are all around us. They're in desperate need of being saved, but most of the people God has sent to search and rescue are in no hurry. Jesus, on the other hand, is consumed with redeeming the lost. Now, if you doubt me, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Here, we find what I call a trilogy of parables throughout the chapter. And they include the following. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Each of these stories drives home the message of God's incredible love for a lost and dying world. Today I want us to use the first of these parables to emphasize to you the love God has for sinners. The lesson is simple. In light of God's great love for the lost, we should be passionately engaged in a search and rescue mission to reach them with the gospel. Now that you found your way to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, I want to read this section for you so you'll know the parable and you'll kind of know where we're going. Look in verse 1 if you would. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. But the scribes and the Pharisees began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. As we begin to look at this story, there are a number of things I want to show you, a number of things within this parable that I think are very important to us in understanding our mission to search and rescue the lost. First of all, we see in this story the lost sinners. You'll see in verse 1, the Bible says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him. 
what you find here is that sinners are attracted to Jesus. Now that may seem strange because sometimes I think we have the mentality that that sinners hate Jesus. And it is true that there are some people who have that sort of an attitude toward Christ. But there are many people who are not hardened to that extent. There are many people who are searching for answers. There's an emptiness in their hearts that they cannot find anywhere. And when Jesus walked on this earth, there were many people who were attracted to him. Now, there are several reasons why they were attracted. One reason, Jesus had a deep love for people. Jesus loved the lost. Did you know when you have a love for people, you can't hide it? People will know if you genuinely care about them. I mean, don't you? Don't you know when people genuinely care about you? Don't you know when people really love you? Well, Jesus really loved people. And it was demonstrated in a lot of ways. We see it through his compassion. Jesus was stirred, the Bible says, when he saw the people scattered about as sheep having no shepherd. He was compassionate. His his insides were all torn up. That's literally what the word means in that context is that he was so moved by the people and their condition that he acted. He truly loved people. He demonstrated that love through reaching out to people in need. He would go to where the people were. The Bible says it was Jesus' custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That's where the people would gather. Of course, Jesus gathered there. He gathered there with them as they came to worship. Also, he would be in the temple in Jerusalem when they're in Jerusalem visiting. He would go to the temple and interact with the people there. He would teach the people. And, And the Bible says that when Jesus taught He taught as one with authority, unlike the scribes and the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. There was something about his teaching that was different. And here's what it really was. Jesus' teaching was with authority because he was God in human flesh. Walking among the people, teaching them the truth. And it was compelling to them. It spoke to their very hearts. It dealt with the issue that they were confronted by every day. And that is their condition of lostness. And he was able to speak hope and life into them. Jesus also demonstrated his love for people and that he ministered to their physical needs. Uh, Jesus on many occasions would heal the sick. People who were blind even from birth. People who could not speak. People who could not hear or walk. Leopardous people, Jesus would reach out and heal them. Also, Jesus raised the dead. We know this happened on a number of occasions. For example, remember Jairus' daughter, just a little girl, was healed. We also know that Jesus healed the widow's son from Nain. She had a, a young man who was, who was, uh, a very important person in her life because she was dependent on him to to survive. And Jesus saw the funeral procession. He stopped it and he healed that man, raised him from the dead, that young man, and gave him back to his mother. We also know he healed Lazarus, an older man. There at the tomb, he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And, And he came out of the grave. So Jesus demonstrated his love for people in doing miracles and 
and healing people and even raising the dead to authenticate to the people that he was, in fact, God in human flesh. Jesus did all of these things to help people. Remember also Jesus fed people. On a number of occasions, Jesus took just a small portion of food, fish and loaves of bread, breaking it apart, giving it to his disciples, and they distributed it to the people. People who were hungry, people who were without. So Jesus showed compassion for these people. He showed love for these people. And the greatest love of all was when Jesus willingly sacrificed himself on Calvary's cross. Nailed there to die, having been beaten beyond recognition, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world and was victoriously raised from the dead that through faith in him alone we would be saved. Look at all these things that Jesus did to demonstrate his love for people. That's why people were attracted to Jesus. And I still think that people, there are many people who have an open heart, who have open minds, and they're willing to hear about Jesus. I found that there are more people who are lost who are willing to engage people at the level of spiritual conversation than there are Christians who are willing to talk to them about Christ. And Jesus drew people to himself. Sinners were attracted to him. Also, sinners were attentive to Jesus. Let's continue to read in verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. Now, these were tax collectors and sinners. And notice the distinguishing between these two categories of people. Uh, In the minds of the folks in that day, tax collectors were in a whole different category. They were not just sinners. They were tax collectors. They were really frowned upon because they would uh, take up money from the people and give it to the Romans. And they were allowed to take more taxes than necessary and keep the excess for themselves. We have a good example of the hatred toward tax collectors in the story of Zacchaeus. When Jesus went to his house and the people were aghast, they couldn't believe that Jesus would go spend time with such a notorious sinner as this tax collector. But the emphasis here is that these are the people who were despised by the religious folks of the day. Those who were self-righteous. Those who did not see a need for Christ and even they were his adversaries. They were very critical of the tax collectors and sinners and especially Jesus spending time with them. But these are the very people who had a desire to hear. Don't you see the irony here in that these are religious leaders yet they reject Jesus? These are people who should have known better. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders of the temple. These are the people who should have recognized Jesus because they had the prophecies of old. And Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Yet they rejected Christ. But the very people who did not have access to all of these advantages. Were the very ones who were eager to hear Christ. They were attracted to him. These are the lost sinners. 
Jesus goes right to where they are and ministers to them. He's going to the streets and byways. He's, he's going to the marketplaces. He's going to the homes of these people. Wherever they are, that is where he goes to meet the people. Why? Because Jesus was on a search and rescue mission. I've always enjoyed fishing. I don't fish very much anymore. As you get older, it seems like it's harder to do those things. But when I was a boy, I would often go fishing with my dad in the Satilla River. We'd go down in the Satilla River swamp, spend all Saturday afternoon until just about dark. And it was not uncommon for us to wade through those sloughs. We would be about chest deep and we'd be fishing. We, we would go to where we thought the fish were. And we would always catch a string of fish, bring them home and clean them. That was the worst part. But we did enjoy spending time together in those uh, dark waters. Now, I wouldn't do that now. I don't think I would wade that deep now uh, because of the alligators. We didn't have as many alligators back then. But I hear that alligators really like preachers. (laughs) They think we taste like chicken. And for good reason, right? I quickly learned that to catch fish, you had to do two things. You had to go to where the fish were, and you had to fish. Now, it's possible to go to where the fish are without actually fishing. For example, you you may go down to the ocean. There's a lot of fish in the ocean, right? But if you don't fish, you won't catch any fish. You can go to a pond or a lake or a river filled with fish, but if you don't fish, you're not going to catch anything. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You find him going where sinners lived and worked. Jesus told Peter, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. When you and I follow Jesus... We will go to where sinners are and we will try to win them to Jesus. We will also be concerned about those who have drifted away from Jesus and will try to restore them to fellowship with Christ and his church. But if we're going to do that, we have to go to where the people are and we have to fish for the people. If we're truly followers of Jesus... If we're truly disciples of Jesus, then we will be fishing. Don't claim to be a follower of Jesus and never go fishing with him. Because, again, Jesus told Peter, and he's telling us today, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We know what the commission is, to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. The question is, are we following Jesus? If so, one evidence of that is that we're going where the people are and we're fishing. Now think about when we leave here this morning, when we go about our regular responsibilities during the week, we will be scattered in all different directions, hundreds of different directions. We will be going all across Coffee County, all throughout the state, the nation, and some even overseas. And we will encounter literally thousands and thousands of unreached people in the course of this next week. How many times do you think we will take 
the advantage of that strategic position to share Christ with others. Well, we're told by studies that well over 90% of believers never share their faith. They never even attempt to do it. So that would mean, if, if we're average people, that would mean the vast majority of these encounters will go without us taking advantage of the opportunity. Missing the opportunity to share Jesus with people. So in this, in this story here, we see the lost sinners that are around Jesus. But notice also, we find there are religious people. Look in verse 2. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Notice their indifference. These people are just indifference. Here they are. They are in a position to share with these people the truth. They have access to the Old Testament scriptures. They've studied them. They've memorized them. They are the teachers themselves. But yet they don't see who Jesus is. They don't recognize him for who he is because of the hardness of their hearts. They had a man-made religion. They had their own system that they'd put in place that was not consistent with belief in God and following Him. They had created their own commandments. And they had raised them to a level far above the commands of God. And that's why they had such a hatred for Christ. They were indifferent to the people around them who were in need. They lacked concern, compassion, and yes, even love for these people. And again, that's why people were attracted to Jesus because he was genuine. He really cared for them, but not these leaders. They were indifferent. Isn't it true that we can become indifferent? Well, we just don't care we become jaded we become insensitive not only do we see their indifference we see their grumbling look if you would in verse 2 again the bible says that they were grumbling they began to grumble grumbling is not a spiritual gift Uh, Complaining and grumbling denotes that we are not thankful people. It also is uncharacteristic of a person who's walking in the spirit of God. When we grumble and complain and gripe, these are not qualities of the spirit. These are not fruits of the Spirit. They reveal something about us spiritually that is very unhealthy at best. Here these religious people look at Jesus and they're grumbling because he's spending time with people who are in need. What a tragedy this is. They miss this golden opportunity themselves to interact with these people and they're critical of Christ for Spending time with them trying to reach them. 
And I think it's important that I say to you that Jesus did not indulge in the activities that sinners typically would practice. He just simply connected with them on a human level and loved them right where they were. He never compromised the truth in order to do that. He never changed who he was in order to reach these people. He simply loved them and ministered to them. And then as a result, he was accused. Notice their accusation in verse 2. The Bible says here that the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That is, he is he's fellowshipping with them. He ought not do that. These religious people, again, because of their own self-made religion, their own understanding of what holiness was, which was, a, which was at best a skewed understanding. Their idea of holiness was that we keep ourselves physically separated from these people. We're better than they are. We're more important than they are. We're holy and they're unholy. We don't want to contaminate ourselves by coming in contact with these people. Holiness is not achieved by human effort. We cannot be holy in and of ourselves. Self-righteousness is not the same as holiness. The book of Isaiah says that our own righteousness is as Filthy rags in the sight of God. We cannot be holy. We cannot produce righteousness in and of ourselves. Our righteousness is the result of our relationship with Christ. The Bible says that when we become followers of Jesus, we are declared righteous. God says, I'm righteous. The Bible speaks about how that our righteousness is imputed to us, which means God gives us righteousness. It's not something we produce in and of ourselves. We're declared righteous, and then God begins a work in us the moment we're saved. He begins to change us, to conform us, and it's a, it's a gradual process. The process is called sanctification. Where God changes us ultimately to become just like Jesus. That is God's goal for us is to conform us to the very image of Christ. He will accomplish that goal. He's working in your life now if you're a Christian to do that. He's working in my life. He is changing us. He's transforming us. We will achieve that goal ultimately when we're graduated to that glorification when we're with Christ Jesus, we're in his presence and we've cast aside this old human body that is prone to sin, that's when we will ultimately be like Jesus. But our righteousness in and of ourselves is not achievable. We cannot ultimately be righteous by our own human effort. It's our surrender to Christ. It is our Yielding of our will to his will that ultimately will produce the practical righteousness, the living out of this righteousness that God desires to see within us. But again, in the the mistaken 
idea and, and philosophy of the religious people of, of Jesus' day, their, their thought was you become righteous by separating yourself. Now, with that being said, there should be a distinction between us and those who do not follow Christ. Our lives should be markedly different. There should be a contrast for people to see. If people who are lost look at us and we look just like them, and we're in terms of behavior, if if we're doing the same ungodly things that they're doing, then there's no distinction that they can see between us and them. And and some people, I think, uh, I've, I've heard of people, even pastors who who have tried to so mimic the behavior of lost people under the guise that I'm going to try to reach this person that they've erred. We have to be careful about that. So I'm not saying that we embrace the practices of the lost in order to reach them. I'm saying that we lovingly connect with them on a human level and let them see Christ living within us. And the difference is not us. The difference is Jesus living within us. And when we yield to him, he changes us. And there will be that stark, stark comparison between us and them. Some of the most bitter cantankerous and difficult people I've ever met are religious people. I've met a lot of religious people as a pastor for 30 years. And some of you have met some of those religious people too. People who have religion with, listen, people who have religion without an authentic relationship with Jesus tend to be self-righteous and judgmental of others. Now, there's a need for clarification here. When I say judgmental of others, I'm not saying that we should just tolerate and accept and embrace the lifestyles of those who are wicked. When I say judgmental, I'm not saying that we should not judge between truth and error to make that distinction. We should. The Bible tells us to do that. But a judgmental spirit is when we look at someone and we condemn them. We're not interested in reaching them. We're interested in condemning them because they don't look like us or because they don't do something we think is religious. And therefore, we think we're better than they are. Jesus, if there's anybody who had the right to think he was better than others, it was, it was Christ. He's the God-man descended to where we are, walking among this lowly people, these sinful people, yet he didn't rub it in their faces. He lovingly tried to tell them and to show them a better way, the only way. And once they embraced him, he began to change their lives and they conformed to Christ. I'm glad Jesus didn't let religious people keep him from loving the lost. That's a lesson you and I need to remember. Now, let's move on and we see that Jesus begins to tell this story 
in verse 3. And it involves the loving shepherd. The loving shepherd. Look in verse 3. He says, so he told them this parable. Now, let me tell you what a parable is. A parable is simply a story. Are you listening? A parable is simply a story that has a spiritual significance to it. It's an earthly story that has some spiritual connection to it. Jesus would often tell parables in order to help people to understand what he was teaching. And he actually told some parables so that people could not understand. Those who were uh, desirous of killing him and those who were against him, it was like kind of like a code language. He could tell a story and they wouldn't really understand what he was saying. But Jesus would tell these parables and they would have a spiritual lesson. Now, just a little a side note here. Now, are you listening? So say amen. A parable has one central meaning. Be careful that you do not allegorize a parable when you're interpreting it. In other words, don't assign a meaning to every little detail in the parable. If, if so, you will err. A parable has one central meaning. Jesus is telling this parable in order to address the criticism leveled by the religious leaders. And let's look at the parable now. Let's see what Jesus has to say. First of all, he begins to talk about the loving shepherd. We see the love for the lost sheep that the shepherd has. Verses 3 and 4. So Jesus told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? He begins to set the stage for this parable and talks about the love that this shepherd has for his sheep. And and the shepherd has a hundred sheep. And you need to understand something about the shepherd. The shepherd was the protector of the sheep. Without the shepherd, the sheep would not last. They would be scattered. Wolves would come in. Thieves would rob and take the sheep away. These sheep depended upon the shepherd. And he was to give an account for these sheep. He was constantly counting to make sure all the sheep were together. That's where their safety was, together in a flock. So he would count the herd. And he counted and he found only 99 and he had possession of 100. So what does he do? Well, he's concerned because he loves his sheep and one is missing. So what does he do? Well, he has to go and search. He says, does not... The shepherd leave the 99 in the open pasture that is in a place of protection where they could be seen from a distance. And does he not leave them and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? That is, there's a diligent search for the sheep. He is urgently looking and he's not going to stop until he finds the sheep. It's a relentless search. So we see the love for the sheep and we see the search for the sheep. Again, emphasizing 
Verse 5, when he has found it, that is this search continued until the sheep was found, until the mission was accomplished. He searched diligently. And then notice he returns with the lost sheep. Let's continue to read in verse 5. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So he returns with the sheep. Rejoicing, excited, happy, celebrating. And he gathers his friends and neighbors and they have a huge celebration because the sheep that had been lost was now found. What we find here is the loving shepherd. The shepherd is willing to put his life at risk, if need be, in order to protect The herd. And that's exactly what he does here. You know, in our culture, we are often talking about love. And we think of love in terms of a feeling. Something you feel. Maybe like a cold chill up the spine. Let me suggest you have to be very careful about that. Could be the onset of the flu. Be very careful. But love is far more than an emotion. Love is an action. For example, in John chapter 3 verse 16, we read these words. For God so loved the world, he gave. It was not just that God felt this emotion for the world, the lost world, lost humanity. God so loved them, he acted, he he gave. He gave his only begotten son. God's love motivated him to act on our behalf. Remember John chapter 14 verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see the connection? It's not just, well, I have this emotion for God. I have this feeling for God. No, he says, if you truly love me, it will be demonstrated in obedience. So love is not just a feeling we have. It is something we do. If we truly love God and love others, we will be involved in the search and rescue of those separated from God. To be like Jesus involves loving like Jesus. To be a disciple means we're following Christ. How can we claim to follow Christ When we don't go where he went. And we don't love the way he loved. And we don't search the way he searched. And we don't rescue the way he rescued. Notice finally though in this passage we see the jubilant heavenly host. Verse 7 says there was celebration when the lost are saved. I tell you. That in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He says there is celebration in heaven when a lost person is saved. 
When a, when a lost person is connected to the creator and redeemed, there's great celebration in heaven. There's joy and there should be joy in the Christian life. You know, uh, churches that are filled with joy and celebration are churches that are le- reaching the lost. You show me a church that is filled with joy and I'll show you a church that is reaching lost people. How could you not be overjoyed when you see people coming to faith in Christ and their lives being transformed? But notice there's also silence with, there's silence when the self-righteous do not repent. Verse 7 goes on to say that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And this gets to the heart of why he tells the parable. He's telling this parable because of the Pharisees and the scribes criticizing him for spending time among the lost. They don't realize they're the lost. They don't realize it because they're religious. They have a self-made religion. They don't see a need for salvation. They don't see a need for repentance. They think they're righteous. So there's no rejoicing. It's really a tragedy. It's sad. And Jesus says here, there's rejoicing more so in heaven. Joy over the one who Repents, this sinner who comes to faith, then over all of you who don't even see a need for salvation. That's the central purpose of this story. When we think about joy in relationship in relationship to the Christian life. I want to point out something for you. If you have a pen or a pencil, you may want to circle these words. I told you there are three parables here that emphasize basically the same thing. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. There is an increase in value with each of these stories. Moving from sheep to more expensive coin and then ultimately to the lost son, the prodigal son. But notice here the time. Notice how many times the word joy or rejoicing or celebration occurs. We see first of all in verse 5, the Bible speaks about rejoicing. In verse 6, rejoice. In verse 7, joy. In verse 9, rejoice with me. I found the coin that was lost. In verse 10, I tell you there's more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then notice in verse 23, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for my son. This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they begin to celebrate. Then the elder son is critical. Look in verse 29, he says, you've never allowed me to have this type of a a party, essentially is what he's saying, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But then look in verse 32, 
And the father told him, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. I take away from from all of this mentioning of joy and celebration and joy that if you really want to have joy in the Christian life, you have to get off the pew. And you got to invest your life in somebody else. You got to be like Jesus and you got to go fishing where the fish are and you have to fish. You have to be involved in a search and rescue effort. Have you ever been watching television and you see a, you're watching a program and all of a sudden it's interrupted by breaking news? The news report comes on saying that uh, something that uh, to uh, this, you, you need to hear about something that's happening in the world, information that needs to be shared immediately. When we are searching and rescuing the lost, it is breaking news in heaven. The streets of the celestial city come alive with excitement and joy as the news echoes down Glory Avenue and Hallelujah Boulevard. Knowing that all of heaven rejoices over the lost being found should cause us to be involved at a deep level in this search and rescue effort. This is what we've been called to do. I remember years ago, my family and I were vacationing down at the beach in in Florida. The shore was filled with people. A lot of folks on the beach that day. They were enjoying the sun and the surf. Suddenly, I heard the frantic voice of a young woman calling out the name Summer. A young lady had lost her little girl on that crowded beach. You could see the fear in her eyes and you could hear the desperation in her voice. Summer! Summer! She cried. Sonia ran over to the lady and asked her what the little girl looked like. She anxiously described her as having on a full swimsuit with these little flotation devices, you know, on the arms. As we heard her passionate plea, a number of us fanned out across that beach and we started going down, calling for summer, looking for summer. Where is summer? Trying to find this little girl. We were looking everywhere for her. Her mother must have run a about a half a mile down the beach, frantically crying out her name. It was a very distressing thing to see. About 15 minutes later, we saw her returning, holding her little daughter's, her little daughter by the arm. She was literally sobbing. Her entire body looked completely drained from the ordeal. That woman was passionate about finding her little girl. Nothing was more important than that. It was an urgent matter to her. She reminded me about how much God wants to restore sinners. We should have the same passion for the lost as this woman had for her little girl. Today I leave you with this challenge. Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come.
You and I are on a search and rescue mission. The time is running out. We have to be busy. Father, we pray that you'll take this message and do not allow it to leave our hearts and minds.